Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racist ideologies, anti-Semitism, assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. As the sun went down on Friday, July 2nd, 1999, Benjamin Smith prowled the suburbs of Chicago in his blue Ford Taurus. With everyone in the neighborhood busy preparing for the upcoming holiday, no one noticed the hatred etched on Smith's face or the two semi-automatic guns placed on the seat next to him. Smith, a member of the white supremacist group, the World Church of the Creator, had every intention of using those weapons. The Illinois state government had just barred the church's leader, Matt Hale, from getting his law license. Angered by this denial, Smith was on the hunt, looking for ethnic minorities to kill. Smith soon found his opportunity when he spotted a small group of Orthodox Jews walking from their Sabbath evening services. He got out of his car, approached the group, and fired at them with both weapons, injuring six. Smith jumped back in his car and then drove 15 minutes away to another suburb, where he spotted a black man and two of his children walking down the street. The man's name was Ricky Birdsong. He was a husband, father of three, and the former head basketball coach at Northwestern University. Smith pulled up next to them and unleashed his fury yet again, mortally wounding Birdsong. He sped off, leaving the screaming, panicked children behind. For Smith, causing all this trauma was just the beginning. He had declared war on the government and wasn't going to stop until he and his white brethren stood victorious. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we charted the rise and fall of Ben Klassen, a successful businessman who founded the hate group known as the Church of the Creator in 1973, but left it in ruins when he died in 1993. This week, we'll follow the journey of his successor, Matt Hale, and the extreme measures he took to spread his racist beliefs throughout American society. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. 
1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hate is a cancerous contagion that drives many to ruin. It's often born from misunderstanding or a feeling of alienation. But not all those with hate in their hearts are simply misguided and innocent. Instead, there are a few, like Matt Hale, who weaponize their anger and infect others with it. While Hale's cult didn't believe in observing sacred rituals or a deity, they still had a singular goal in mind. They were hell-bent on overthrowing the government. Hale said he didn't actually want a violent revolution, but once he'd given his followers a target for their hate, their actions spun out of his control. Matt Hale's earliest memories were of the arguments between his mother and father, Evelyn and Russell. The couple fought constantly until they eventually divorced in 1980, when Hale was nine. According to the book Theology of Hate, A History of the World Church of the Creator, Russell couldn't handle Evelyn's departure. At one point, while on duty as a police officer, he visited her and threatened to kill himself if she didn't return. The East Peoria Police Department in Illinois deemed Russell mentally unfit for duty and suspended him. This violent and unstable environment left young Hale feeling adrift. He sought comfort by any means possible. Hale coped with the stress and anxiety of the experience in one of the most maladaptive ways. In 1983, 12-year-old Hale lost himself in William L. Shirer's 1,200-page tome, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, A History of Nazi Germany. He became fascinated with the Nazis, specifically their beliefs and their path to becoming a world power. A few months later, Hale's obsession led him to read Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. Later in his life, Hale proudly announced that these two works began what he called a racial awakening within him. Reading these books likely impacted Hale's developing mind and crystallized his racism. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Besides the books, it's unclear what influenced Hale to become racist, but his father's tolerance and even encouragement of Hale's racism certainly played a part. His parents' divorce may also have played a role. Though divorce is sometimes good and necessary for families, it can also have negative effects on children if parents don't give them the proper emotional support. According to a 2009 article in The Telegraph, a study commissioned by the Mishkan Dorea law firm demonstrates some of the negative effects divorce can have on a young psyche. The study found that children who endure a particularly bitter and hostile divorce are often led to act out their feelings in self-destructive ways. Further, this may manifest as run-ins with the law. The study stated, children whose parents go through an acrimonious separation or divorce are being failed by the law, with one in ten turning to crime. Hale's obsession with racist ideals may have been an extreme reaction to his parents' rocky relationship. He may have embraced fascism because he knew it was wrong, 
or because identifying with the role of a violent, hateful person made him feel more powerful. And as the years went by, these racist beliefs continued to grow. By the time Hale reached the eighth grade, he began a neo-Nazi group with a few other classmates called the New Reich. It was likely disbanded after teachers discovered it. The members probably received a stern warning about the severity of their actions, and all of them, except Hale, carried on with their lives. Looking back, most of the members probably believed the club was a severely misguided attempt at being rebellious. But the New Reich was more than just a fad for Hale. It gave him his first taste of power, and he wanted more. However, Hale seems to have kept his racism a secret through high school and waited until he found a more receptive environment. Hale believed he found it in 1989, when he started attending Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. It was located just a few blocks away from his childhood home. While in college, Hale didn't broaden his horizons. Instead, he remained focused on his bigoted beliefs. He even decided to study political science to better understand how the government functioned. He wanted to learn how he could rise to power and influence government policy. In 1990, the 20-year-old began distributing racist pamphlets around campus and throughout the city, but was quickly ordered to stop by local authorities. They fined him for littering. This relatively minor incident set off a chain of more serious crimes in the months to follow. In 1991, Hale was arrested for threatening three black men with a gun. Then a year later, authorities charged Hale with criminal trespass, resisting arrest, aggravated battery, and carrying a concealed weapon after he attacked a security guard in a shopping mall. His punishment? Six months of house arrest and 30 months of probation. But this wasn't much of a penalty for 21-year-old Hale. He continued to launch racist groups and even gained some press coverage. If Hale hadn't been so hateful, the room where his racist organizing took place would almost be comically villainous. The walls were painted a dark Nazi red, and an Israeli flag was used as a doormat. The only thing that didn't fit in with the symbols of hate and racism were the teddy bears that lay on Hale's bed. The aspiring neo-Nazi leader hadn't grown out of his childhood affection for them. Sleeping in a pile of stuffed animals wasn't the only way Hale refused to grow up. After graduating in 1993, he didn't jump into politics or climb the career ladder. Instead, 23-year-old Hale spent most of his time holed up in his room reading racist fringe authors. It was during this year or two that Hale discovered the works of Ben Klassen, the founder of the Church of the Creator, otherwise known as the COTC. Hale read two of Klassen's primary books, Nature's Eternal Religion and The White Man's Bible, in which Klassen laid out the fundamental beliefs of the church. Hale fully agreed with the church's racist pseudoscience, which denigrated ethnic minorities as mud races and elevated the white race. Hale also felt drawn to Klassen's conspiracies that Jewish people controlled American society through the government. And though Hale was Christian in his childhood, he also accepted Klassen's brand of atheism. At last, Hale had found the community he had been seeking and became a member in 1995. At the time, the Church of the Creator was so small that there wasn't a local chapter nearby. 
To fix this, Hale established the first East Peoria, Illinois chapter out of his father's house. Hale maintained a close correspondence with other members throughout the nation and quickly rose through the sparse ranks. Such devotion to the COTC was rare in those days. After Klassen died by suicide in August of 1993, the church's numbers had dwindled drastically. Only a handful of his most zealous followers remained. They called themselves the Guardians of the Faith Committee, and they dedicated themselves to preserving the dying embers of Klassen's legacy. However, the Guardians faced a major problem. None of them had the finances, vision, or frankly the intelligence to revitalize the hate group. Still, those few who remained held out hope that a new leader would rise, and Hale was ready to fill that void. On July 27, 1996, Hale's 25th birthday, the Guardians gathered on a ranch in Superior, Montana, to officially confirm their new leader. During the ceremony, they anointed Hale and gave him the most prestigious rank of their organization, Pontifex Maximus, which is Latin for greatest priest. As Pontifex Maximus, Hale's first order of business was to rebrand the church as the World Church of the Creator. He boasted that the name change foreshadowed the church's influence. They would spread their message across the earth. After the ceremony in Montana, Hale returned to Illinois to run the organization from his childhood home. From his room, he published a monthly newsletter called The Struggle. Writing this allowed him to maintain control of his growing number of followers, mostly young, white, male supremacists throughout the nation. Hale was also adept at garnering attention from the press for his bigoted beliefs and conducted numerous interviews with large media outlets. At one point, years later, a reporter from the Associated Press asked Hale when he first discovered he was a racist. Hale calmly stated, I do not hesitate to say that the first time I saw a black kissing a white girl, I felt sick. I felt nauseous. It was instinctively wrong to me. Although clearly out of touch with reality, Hale knew how to grow his audience. In a stroke of corrupt genius, he brought the church's presence online to unite the white supremacists scattered throughout the U.S. into a stronger force. Although getting the exact membership numbers is difficult, an Anti-Defamation League report from the early 2000s found Hale's efforts have yielded significant dividends. The group now has more than 65 contact points, 22 of whom are incarcerated members, spread across at least 22 states and nine international contacts. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like Hale had made good on his promise to reach the whole world. If anyone had any doubts about Hale's ability when he first started, his early successes quickly won over remaining detractors within the church. Hale's intelligence, ease in front of crowds, and passionate speeches made it seem like he was class in reincarnate. Their similarities also went beyond demeanor. Ultimately, both leaders wanted to radically transform the United States. They sought to turn it into a white supremacist country and place minorities in subservient positions. However, for all their similarities, Klassen and Hale differed about how they would achieve that vision. Klassen wanted to start a racial holy war to seize power. Hale, on the other hand, wanted to take control of America through spreading racist ideologies. 
Perhaps Hale had changed tactics since he'd been arrested for pulling a gun on three black men during his college days. Hale didn't believe what he had done was morally wrong. He simply realized that committing acts of violence would just turn more people against the World Church of the Creator. Hale knew his racial war wouldn't be won through violence, but public policy and media manipulation. He told his followers, it is the courtroom where social change begins. Whether one is talking about the Dred Scott decision or school integration, courtroom battles have largely shaped our society. Seeking to enter these halls of power for himself, Hale enrolled at Southern Illinois Law School. By the summer of 1998, the 27-year-old had graduated and successfully passed the bar exam on his first attempt. The only thing stopping Hale from officially becoming a lawyer was the Illinois Bar Association. In 1999, the committee denied Hale's law license after they discovered his COTC connection, then interviewed Hale about his racist beliefs. They believed his racist views prevented him from fulfilling his duty to fight for justice, regardless of race. Infuriated, Hale hired other lawyers to appeal his case. Although they argued that the association's denial violated Hale's First Amendment right to political speech, the Bar Association still didn't grant Hale's license. Hale was crushed, but tenacious. He planned to fight the courts until he got what he wanted. Unfortunately, Hale's desire to fight his battles in the courtroom didn't spread to all of his followers. One of Hale's adherents, Benjamin Smith, reacted in a much more violent way. Coming up, blood is shed over the court's decision. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast Network. The Vatican is one of the most recognizable religious sites in the world, but it's also a powerful institution. Its unique history full of secrecy. This Easter, my show Conspiracy Theories looks deep into the church's past to uncover how it became what it is today. Starting April 5th, our new four-part miniseries, Mysteries of the Vatican, dives in to examine some of the most prominent conspiracy theories surrounding this mysterious organization. From the church's sordid rise to power, to prophetic visions, and even assassination attempts. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories, to hear Mysteries of the Vatican. New episodes air every Monday and Wednesday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the story. In 1999, 28-year-old Matt Hale's future as a lawyer was put on hold by the Illinois Bar Association. They decided his racism made him morally unfit to serve as a lawyer. This was egregious to Hale and his followers, particularly 21-year-old Benjamin Smith. Smith had met Hale and joined the World Church of the Creator in 1998. The two men instantly formed a connection. With a seemingly ordinary and fairly privileged Midwest background, it might seem odd that Smith would become a full-fledged neo-Nazi so quickly, but he was primed for it. Former white supremacist Christian Picciolini says that it's easy for young white men to fall into the ideology. In a 2019 radio interview, Picciolini described his own experience of joining a hate group in his teens, explaining, 
It's the time when young people are really trying to develop that sense of identity, community, and purpose. If young people are feeling marginalized, or maybe they're vulnerable and they get detoured by what I call potholes, the things in life we encounter, things like trauma or mental health issues or poverty, those types of things detour people as they're searching for identity, community, and purpose. On the fringes, there's always somebody with a narrative ready to give it to you and to certainly blame somebody else for the pain that you're feeling. Smith's experience with Hale and the World Church of the Creator wasn't unique. Hale brainwashed countless young followers by rallying them with a narrative of white oppression and inviting them into a community built on hate. While Smith was indoctrinated into the WCOTC and learned their views, he also developed more violent behaviors. He became easily agitated and was once accused of domestic violence against his college girlfriend. And when the government denied Matt Hale his law license in 1999, Smith believed he had a right to retaliate with lethal force on behalf of the group. Smith told the Bloomington Independent, we believe we can legally come to power through nonviolence, but Hale says if they try to restrict our legal means, then we have no recourse but to resort to terrorism and violence. On June 23, 1999, Smith tried to buy two 9mm firearms and a shotgun at a gun store in Peoria Heights, Illinois. However, the clerk refused to sell to Smith after running a background check that revealed the previous domestic violence charges. Although denied, Smith was determined. A week later, Smith illegally purchased a 380mm pistol and a 22mm pistol from a street dealer. With weapons in hand, Smith waited for the perfect day to start a war. That day was Friday, July 2nd, 1999. Smith believed that killing minorities would incite other white supremacists to join the WCOTC in a racial holy war. It's unclear what Smith's endgame was, but it seems that after the war, he wanted to rebuild a new America for whites only. Smith's attack began in various suburbs throughout the Chicago area. That evening, he drove around and shot at a group of Orthodox Jews standing outside of a synagogue, injuring six of them. Then he drove to another neighborhood and shot Ricky Birdsong, a black man who was walking with his two children. Once Smith felt he was far enough away from the scene of Birdsong's shooting, he slowed down again to look for more targets. An Asian couple driving behind him blared their horn, annoyed with his crawling pace. As they sped past, Smith fired at them, but missed. Knowing everyone in Chicago would be on high alert after these attacks, Smith fled the city to locate more prey elsewhere. In the early morning of July 3rd, he drove three and a half hours south to Springfield, Illinois. Upon arriving, he shot at two black men, but missed. Then he drove a few miles further and shot and wounded a black minister. Smith continued his weekend rampage, driving to the college town of Urbana that night and attacking a group of six Asian students, wounding one with his gunfire. The next day, July 4th, he drove to Bloomington, Indiana and parked in front of the Korean United Methodist Church and watched the attendees mingle after the service. While the churchgoers greeted each other, he pulled up next to them and unloaded on the crowd. At first, everyone thought the loud popping sounds came from fireworks. They only realized how wrong they were when 26-year-old Won Jun Yoon went down. 
Smith tried to flee yet again, but this time he made a fatal mistake. Instead of escaping in his Ford, he hijacked a slow-moving van from a gas station. Police were immediately alerted and the chase was on. With the police on his tail, it seems Smith knew he wouldn't escape this time. While speeding down the highway, Smith tried to shoot himself in the head through the bottom of his chin. However, his aim was off. Still, the injury to his head was severe. The wound caused Smith to lose control of the van and crash on the side of the road. Seeing their opportunity, police rushed the van with their guns drawn and tried to force Smith out. While struggling with deputies, Smith's gun went off two more times, hitting him in the chest and thigh. Authorities rushed him to the hospital, but after 40 minutes in emergency surgery, Smith died. All told, Smith's two-state shooting spree injured nine people and claimed two lives. The former basketball coach, Ricky Birdsong, and the Korean graduate student, Won Jun Yoon. The media soon uncovered Smith's fanatical involvement with the World Church of the Creator, and people demanded answers from its leader, Matt Hale. During the first few media interviews, Hale denied ever knowing Benjamin Smith. However, police discovered Hale and Smith had talked on the phone for a total of 13 hours in the three weeks before the shootings. 28 of those minutes were just two days before Smith's attacks. Forced to show his hand, Hale confessed to knowing Smith. But instead of condemning Smith's actions, Hale used his time in the national spotlight to boast about his mission. Hale made ludicrous claims about the size of the World Church of the Creator and stated that he had 80,000 followers all over the world. However, based on financial records, the true number was only 207. When Hale talked about Smith during the interviews, he remained unapologetic. He didn't take responsibility for inspiring the murders or show remorse for the victims' families. He even went so far as to suggest that he considered Smith a martyr. This was outrageous, of course, but as days passed and more news stories broke, the media's interest in Hale and the World Church of the Creator waned. The group returned to obscurity. And Hale couldn't have that. He started searching for a fresh path back to the national consciousness. In May 2000, Hale found himself embroiled in a lawsuit for something surprisingly mundane, copyright infringement. Another organization, known as the Taitama Truth Foundation, owned the trademark for the name Church of the Creator. Taitama was a New Age Christian church and nonprofit founded to create the family unification of mankind. Their multicultural mission was the complete opposite of Hale's organization. Although Taitama had trademarked the Church of the Creator in 1987, so far they had simply coexisted with Hale's organization and dealt with any confusion that came up. However, after the incident with Smith, Taitama knew they needed to distinguish themselves completely from the hate group. The most effective way to ensure that they were never mistaken for each other again was to legally force Hale to stop using the World Church of the Creator name. The case went to court in January 2002. Hale and his lawyers argued that the name couldn't be trademarked because it was too generic of a term. The judge saw the reasoning in their argument and ruled in Hale's favor, allowing the World Church of the Creator to continue using the name. This was a huge win for Hale, who had promised his followers that he would defend their right to free speech. 
But the victory was short-lived. In July 2002, the decision was overturned in an appeals court. Hale was ordered to change his organization's name and stop using the World Church of the Creator on all of his materials, including its web address. Although this was a devastating blow to the organization and Hale's pride, the judge was lenient with them. She didn't order Hale to destroy any existing material with the name on it. Instead, she simply required Hale to place stickers with a new title on their books, change the website URL, and stop using the name going forward. But Hale wouldn't take this lying down. He told his followers that the government wanted to burn all the books Klassen had written and announced that the WCOTC had entered into a state of war with Judge Joan Lefko. To salvage his pride, Hale moved the WCOTC's headquarters and publications from his home in Peoria to Riverton, Wyoming. There, he believed he would be outside Lefko's jurisdiction and could continue using the name. Believing he had successfully deceived the courts, Hale considered himself untouchable. He went on the attack, filing a nuisance lawsuit against Lefko and also denouncing her professionally during a news conference. Conveniently forgetting that Lefko had originally ruled in his favor, Hale said Lefko was biased against him. He said she altered her decision because her husband was Jewish and her grandchildren were biracial. Hale had always preached that nonviolent legal strategizing would be how the WCOTC would come to power, but he'd reached his limit within the law and wanted to change tactics. So he solicited the head of his security, Tony Evola, for a special assignment. On December 4, 2002, Hale emailed Evola and asked him to find Lefko's home address. Evola agreed. The next day, according to a tape-recorded conversation, Evola asked Hale about the address, when we get it, are we going to exterminate the rat? Hale replied, well, whatever you want to do, basically. Then, later in the conversation, Hale said, you know my position has always been that I'm going to fight within the law, but that information has been provided. If you wish to do anything yourself, you can. Hale had faith in one of his most loyal followers to get the job done. Unfortunately, Evola was never a sincere member of the group. According to George Michael's book, Theology of Hate, when Evola joined the Church of the Creator in 2000, he did it as an informant for the Chicago police. So, when the FBI approached him about wearing a wire during his interactions with Hale, he agreed. All of Hale's emails were also carefully documented by the FBI and ready to be used to bring Hale down. On January 8, 2003, Hale was scheduled to appear before Judge Lefko in a Chicago courthouse yet again. He expected to face a contempt of court charge after refusing to comply with Lefko's first orders to change the group's name. But Hale was in for a nasty surprise. As soon as he cleared the courthouse metal detector, federal officials descended. They arrested him for soliciting the murder of a federal judge and obstructing justice. During Hale's trial throughout 2004, prosecutors played tape recordings and read Hale's emails to Evola to the jury. They built the case that he conspired to kill Lefko. The evidence against Hale was overwhelming. And on April 2004, a jury found Hale guilty of solicitation of murder. Authorities kept Hale in prison while he awaited his sentencing hearing. 
Without Hale's leadership, the church lost the will to fight the government and changed its name to the Creativity Movement. This meek surrender revealed how ineffectual the neo-Nazi group was and prompted most of Hale's followers to scatter. Once again, only the most hardline devotees remained, and they blamed one person for all of their troubles, Judge Joan Lefkoe. Coming up, tragedy strikes Judge Lefkoe. And now, back to the story. After leading the World Church of the Creator for eight years, 33-year-old Matt Hale's tyrannical rule was brought to an abrupt end in 2004. Authorities convicted Hale of conspiring to kill Judge Joan Lefkoe and sent him to jail. While behind bars, Hale seethed in anger, believing that his rights had yet again been trampled on by the very government that claimed to protect them. Trapped in a cell, Hale was desperate to regain control of his organization. Although Hale wasn't allowed much communication with the outside world, he still attempted to maintain his position of leadership. In outgoing mail, guards intercepted coded messages from Hale to his followers. With his plans foiled yet again, Hale's only hope was that someone would carry out his wishes to kill Lefko. Although Hale had never explicitly ordered her assassination, he had suggested as much in his communications with Evola, and he hoped someone would continue the supposed war that he had declared on the judge. Ten months after Hale was found guilty, his desire was nearly fulfilled. On February 28, 2005, 61-year-old Joan Lefko left for her office at the federal courthouse in Chicago. She backed out of the driveway of her three-story home, waving goodbye to her 64-year-old husband, Michael. He was a busy lawyer, but currently home recovering from minor surgery. Michael carefully walked back inside and checked on Joan's 89-year-old mother, Donna Humphrey, who was reading in the living room. With Donna taken care of, Michael went about his morning like on any other day. The house had grown quieter in the years since their four daughters had grown up, but he was glad to see them starting their own lives. Michael was so excited about the upcoming wedding of one of the daughters that he had already purchased a tux, even though the wedding wasn't for six months. He then walked down into the basement, where he kept his home office in a side room, making sure to go easy on his healing foot. When he got down to the bottom, his heart skipped a beat. A man missing much of his lower jaw stood in front of him with a gun in his hand. In Michael's shocked and weakened state, the intruder easily overpowered him, forced him to his knees, and shot Michael in the head. Elderly Donna likely heard the noise and came out to find out what had happened. Moments later, another gunshot rang out. At some point that afternoon, the Lefko's youngest daughter briefly stopped by the house to grab some gym clothes. She didn't stay long and hurried out the door, unaware that her father and grandmother lay dead in the basement. The only person to suspect that something was wrong was Joan Lefko. Michael hadn't returned her calls that day, and her mother wasn't sitting by the living room window reading her Bible when Joan arrived home from work at 5.30 p.m. As she opened the door, Lefko told herself that her husband and mother were both sleeping, but when she walked into their bedrooms, no one was there. She noticed the basement door stood slightly ajar and called into the darkness. When no one answered, she cautiously descended. She turned on a light, 
saw that blood had pooled on the cold concrete floor and opened the office door to find the lifeless bodies of her husband and mother. The rest of the night was a blur. She frantically called 911. Then she called her daughters scattered throughout the country, crying for them to come home. Neighbors reported to the Chicago Tribune that she ran into the street screaming and only started to calm down when a first responder put a blanket over her shoulders. Once investigators arrived, they swept the house for evidence. In the kitchen, they discovered a cigarette left by the perpetrator and signs of forced entry through a window. They began their manhunt that night, immediately focusing on Matt Hale's sympathizers. While officials tried to find the killer, the media and general public had already made up their minds. Hale was certainly involved somehow. He had the motive, a small army of fanatical followers, and he'd already attempted to have Lefko killed once. But when authorities questioned Hale and other members of the creativity movement, those interrogated adamantly denied any involvement. Without any concrete evidence linking creativity to the murders, investigators expanded their search and began following other leads in the early days of March 2005. Even though law enforcement expanded the scope of their search beyond Hale and his organization, they still didn't find anything. It seemed the killer might get away until one deputy caught a lucky break. On March 9th, a police officer in West Dallas, Wisconsin, noticed that a large van was suspiciously parked near a school. When it drove off and made a U-turn, the officer saw that its taillight was out and pulled the van over to investigate. When the patrolman approached the driver's window, a bullet exploded through the glass. The officer instinctively drew his gun, readying himself for a shootout, but found the man inside dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. While backup started to arrive, the officer discovered a suicide note, written weeks earlier. In it, the man identified himself as 57-year-old Bart Ross. He went on to confess that he had killed Michael and Donna. Ross wrote that he had only wanted to kill Joan Lefko, but had no choice but to shoot her loved ones when they discovered him in the basement. To confirm that Ross had indeed committed the murders, investigators ran the DNA from a cigarette found in Ross's car and got a match to the Lefko crime scene. When the police asked Lefko if she recognized the man, she said yes. She had presided over many of his court trials. Ross had been diagnosed with cancer in his face, which forced doctors to remove much of his lower jaw. Although records showed he had willingly accepted the surgery, Ross claimed he was forced into it and the aftermath left him in constant pain. He then attempted to sue the doctors for a ludicrous amount of $1 billion. When the case landed in front of Lefko in September 2004, she had no choice but to dismiss it entirely. She said that she felt sincere empathy for Ross, but his case lacked any possible merit. In the months following Lefko's decision, Ross's anger grew until it detonated in February 2005. Hale watched all of these events unfold from his prison cell while he awaited sentencing. Although he was likely pleased that someone had inflicted pain on the person Hale blamed for the destruction of his church, it didn't bring him any closer to getting out. 
Hale knew if he was going to avoid more jail time, it was up to him to make it happen. When the fateful day of his sentencing finally arrived, Hale desperately tried to win sympathy and get off as easily as possible. The federal judge, James Moody, allowed Hale to give a closing statement. Hale offered a two-hour tirade, pleading his innocence, accusing the FBI of lying, and declaring himself a victim. He even went so far as to compare himself to Lefko. Hale reasoned that, although Ross was the murderer, the media and public had falsely blamed him at first. Hale believed Ross's actions made him a victim by tarnishing his reputation. Hale begged the judge to not let Ross's deeds affect his decision in the sentencing. Hale's wildly inappropriate speech appears to be an example of a narcissist playing the victim. While we don't know if Hale was ever diagnosed as suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, some of his behavior fits the criteria. According to mental health counselor and professor Todd Grande, a narcissist is someone who will look for people to have compassion and sympathy for them when it's not warranted by the circumstances. Another way of putting this is that they tend to deceive. They exaggerate or fabricate stories of loss, oppression, or persecution, and then try to make sure that everybody knows about their story. Despite Hale's best attempts to win sympathy, the court didn't buy it. U.S. Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald later told the press, I put no stock in Hale's claims, the crocodile tears, that he didn't do anything wrong. Hale was sentenced to 40 years in prison. To serve this sentence, Hale was sent to America's highest security prison, the United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility, also called Supermax, in Florence, Colorado. When Hale tried to appeal his sentence a year later in 2006, he was denied. The appeals court that reviewed his case wasn't convinced that there was sufficient evidence to reduce or overturn Judge Moody's ruling. As the years went by, Hale repeatedly tried to appeal his sentence, but was denied every time. His behavior in prison didn't reflect that of a person who had reformed, but one who was stuck in their ways. In 2010, Hale temporarily lost his mailing privileges when he tried to reassert his leadership of the creativity movement. He lost them again in 2013, when he began threatening a federal magistrate judge. Hale remains imprisoned today. He's scheduled for release in 2037. He'll be 66 years old. With Hale's absence, the creativity movement has struggled to survive. Although previously one of America's most prominent hate groups, it seems to only have a small group of followers remaining. Justice was served, and ultimately, the corrosive hatred that Matt Hale, Benjamin Smith, and Ben Klassen so desperately clung to ended up destroying them. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Ben Klassen and the Church of the Creator, amongst the many sources we used, we found George Michael's book, Theology of Hate, A History of the World Church of the Creator, and the resources of the Southern Poverty Law Center, very helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time.
Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Heckert, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 